Welcome to Portfolio Pulse, the money podcast for medical professionals and entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Stephen Husky, owner of Husky Financial Consulting and Wealth Management. Our goal is to help leaders accumulate wealth and empower them to build the life they deserve. Each week, we interview a purpose-driven leader or medical professional that is building a thriving business with community impact. We ask tough questions, learn the habits they practice to build successful careers, and discover a secret they can pass on to help others build their businesses. It's time to talk money, meaning, and maximum impact. Hello and welcome to Portfolio Pulse, the money podcast for medical professionals and entrepreneurs hoping to learn more about achieving financial wellness, accumulating wealth, and building the life they deserve. This podcast is aimed at reaching those interested in healthcare, education, around all things finance and business ownership. So you're in luck today with our guest, Patrick Huey. Today's subject we're going to be talking about is charitable giving, tax efficiency, and bunching strategies. A quick background on Patrick. He is a financial planner and an accredited tax preparer, a certified financial planner, and he is also a chartered advisor in philanthropy and holds a Master of Business Administration from Arizona State University. Patrick is the owner of Victory Independent Planning, LLC, the author of History Lessons for the Modern Investor, and the Seven Pillars of Financial Wisdom. He served as a Naval Flight Officer from 1996 to 2005, earning the Strike Fighter Air Medal during combat operations and two Navy Achievement Medals. He lives with his wife and young son, splitting time between the Pacific Northwest and Southwestern Florida. Patrick, glad to have you on, my friend. Can you please tell us a story about what brought you to this specific career path? Uh, I feel like... um... First of all, I feel like uh, like a lot of people in our industry, uh, it seems like it's never their first love. It's never the first thing they choose to do. It's something they come to later. Um, and, and I'm no exception to that. Uh, this is my second career, as you mentioned, kind of during, during the lead in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what brought me to this career path in a word was mistakes. Um, you know, I, I happened to come of age and, and start investing during the late 90s uh, and early 2000s when I was a young naval officer uh, and was not dedicating any time whatsoever to learning about finances. Um, but that was a time period where you could get a stock tip uh, on some tech company just by, you know, going to get your shoe shined or going to get a haircut. Um, so, um, you know, I made every mistake in the book, uh, ignored diversification, um, uh, you know, basically, uh, went with the hot stock tips and then engaged in the panic selling, uh, when things eventually cratered. So that was really a, a watershed moment for me because I realized that, uh, if I was ever going to get past making those mistakes, if I was ever going to put money away and invest for the future and eventually retire, I needed to educate myself and I needed to get smarter about uh, what was possible, uh, what was probable, um, and uh, how I was going to keep making, keep from making those errors in the future due to my own ignorance. Excellent. You know, being that we're both in the financial industry, we've, we've all got our, what we learn, you know, the way that we do things and to try to fit the strategy uh, for our clients that really helps them accomplish their goals and their needs. And so I'd like to hear a story from you about the most humorous mistake that you made when you were first starting into industry. And, and can you tell us what lesson or takeaway you might've learned from that? Well, uh, again, I think a lot of our industry, especially uh, financial planners um, probably came to it 
uh, through the brokerage world. Uh, that just seems to be a natural pathway where uh, you, you take the first job you can get, quite frankly, um, and then try to work your way up from there and learn where your niche is and where you fit in, in the industry. And again, I took the first job I was offered uh, out of the Navy. Um, I was lucky to get it, quite frankly. Uh, but I realized pretty quickly that the culture that I had entered was not the culture that, that I wanted long-term uh, in, in my life and in my professional life. Um, you know, the junior broker in a large securities firm, uh, you're, you're spending eight to 10 hours a day, you know, calling people at lunch and calling people at dinner. And uh, I think they're starting to get away from that model in a lot of the brokerage houses now, but back in the early 2000s, again, uh, that was the model, right? You were, you were uh, the auto phone dialer, um, you know, calling people to try to solicit business. Like the movie um, Boiler Room. Have you seen that movie? I have seen that movie. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely in heavy rotation in my household around the, around that time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can recall um, getting called into the branch manager's uh, office supposedly because he he wanted to meet me, um, and you know he asked me some questions from behind the big mahogany desk, and uh, we chatted for a while. He asked me about my career in the Navy and, and flying the F-14 off of aircraft carriers. And at the end of all that, he handed me, handed me his wastebasket and said, uh, you mind taking the trash out for me? Uh, which was just such a, a power play, right? To, to remind me of where I was in my career, right? I was a nobody <laughs> again. And, and you know, yeah. Uh, there, there's a couple ways you can take that. Uh, you can certainly be insulted by it. And I was, uh, but it was also a learning moment, right? Uh, because you realize that uh, that organization is, is not where you want to be long-term, um, that you don't want to be in that sales first culture, uh, that you don't uh, want to be taking the, the boss's trash out. Uh, you know, So uh, I stopped doing that. Uh, I take my own trash out now, and uh, it's much more of a, uh, a value-driven culture uh, that I drive now, uh, running my own company, my own firm. So when you're running your own firm, do you have W-2 employees and contractors and things like that on your team that help you? Yeah. I, you know, we've tried very meticulously to create a lifestyle practice, meaning something that, you know, my wife and I can run from just about anywhere, um, but still with some scale. Um, so, yes, we use contractors. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very lucky to have uh, an amazing back office technical suite. Uh, that's provided by my parent, uh, registered investment advisor, uh, which is Dynamic Wealth Advisors out of uh, out of Scottsdale, um, and they also provide me with uh, as much you know uh, scale as I need uh, without really having to worry about employees. Which any uh, you know anybody out there who has started a company or is thinking about starting a company, um, managing people is probably the hardest thing you can do. Um, you know, it's way harder than financial planning. Yeah. Back in my banking days, I was a branch manager for about four years and it is the, one of the toughest jobs. You're the first one there, the last one to leave. You're on those yep. three to four phone calls with your bosses, you know, throughout the day and trying to lead and coach and energize and engage. It's, it's a lot of work. So I definitely understand and respect your position. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and I go back to my Navy days running a division of, you know, 200 sailors. Uh, and that's just a lot. Of, it's a lot of personalities. Uh, it's a lot of stories, uh, and it's a lot to to take on. So, we've tried to you know avoid that uh, as much as we can. Uh, you know, utilizing the tools that are available, mm -hmm. um, but still realizing that you 
in this business, you can't do it all yourself. You, you do, you know, you need some help uh, along the way in certain activities. Good point. Well, let's get into the meat of the subject of today's episode, you know, charitable giving, bunching yeah. strategies, tax efficiency. If you don't mind, walk us through some considerations that you'll make with either some, you know, mass affluent clients or some high affluent clients, especially for those that, you know, are in this field that we're talking about right now. Yeah. And my clientele probably falls mostly into that mass affluent uh, category. Um, these are folks that uh, are often overlooked, I think, in this conversation uh, because charitable giving, people just assume that's, that's for rich people and any strategy around that that's going to help me, um, you know, it's, it's probably for those one percenters. And I, I, I couldn't disagree more. You know, first thing I'll say to caveat it is uh, the number one thing that I tell people, you know, before you start to go down this road is, and it seems so self-evident and, and, and kind of silly, but do you like giving charitably? Are you charitably minded? Because any of the strategies that we go through tax-wise, you know, tax efficiency-wise uh, don't mean anything unless you're very passionate about that charitable piece. Uh, it's one of the reasons I, I, I usually will go through my clients' taxes. Now, I'm a, I'm a tax preparer. I don't actually prepare taxes uh, in most cases. Um, I got the designation because I needed to be able to go in and look at, at things as a technician, mm -hmm. right? So to be able to plan, to be able to, to see things that, that maybe other people would miss. And one of the reasons I, I look at clients' taxes is it's all there. All, all their charitable giving is right there. And you can tell pretty quickly if they're serious about it. Um, and if they are serious about it, are they giving mindfully? Right. And, and that means more than just when somebody asks me, I get out the checkbook. You know, are there organizations that uh, they think about constantly, that they give to constantly? Are there certain causes that they are passionate about? Uh, and those can be global causes, they can be local causes. Uh, but really, what we want to identify straight out is number one, are you charitably inclined? And number two, how so? You know, how much thought have you given to it and how strategic are you in your giving? After that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really a matter of drilling down uh, on that topic to a point where you can say, Mr. And Mrs. Client, I understand that you're charitably inclined. I understand that these are the three charities that, that you like to support. What does that support look like for you in the future? Is it growing? Is it staying static? Is it declining because you've got other uh, things going on. And once you have start to gather that data, now you can start to shift to some of the more nuts and bolts planning uh, to say, well, hey, you know, uh, one of my favorite strategies and, and, and a good story, I think, too, I had a client come to me with some capital gains a few years ago and say, I, you know, I think I'm kind of stuck this year that I've got all these, these capital gains. It's going to bump me up uh, into the 22% tax bracket. So I'm actually going to have to pay capital gains tax for the first time. I don't really want to do that. Is there anything that we can do uh, to, to avoid it? And absolutely there is. And you end up bunching, you know, four or five years of, of charitable contributions into one uh, year and creating a, a donor advised fund, you know, doing your contribute contributions there. Now you've got a much larger charitable deduction uh, in the year of that contribution than you would in any single year. Uh, and you're able to minimize uh, some of the taxation uh, from other sources. 
So that's just a, an example of, you know, understanding the client, understanding that they are charitably inclined and being able to come up with a solution when, you know, uh, outside forces come to play. You know, based on what you just said and working with business owners, I know a lot of CPAs and anyone who's on that tax side of things, they would tell their business owners, hey, you've got quite a bit of taxes coming your way. Go buy a, you know, 10,000 pound vehicle and, and write off the full depreciation this year yeah. on this vehicle. So can you offset having your fifth Range Rover in your driveway by giving more to charity? <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> None of my clients are driving Range Rovers to, to my knowledge. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's certainly room. And anytime you get into conversations about taxation, it's, it's very important, I think, to separate you know, what can be done from what should be done. Uh, there's definitely people out there wish, you know, uh, who are more than willing to push things a little bit further in the tax code than they probably should. That is not what I'm talking about. Uh, and, I, and I know that's not what you're talking about. Right. We're talking about, you know, very uh, nuts and bolts, bread and butter uh, type of, uh, you know, perfectly uh, ethical ways uh, to minimize your taxation. And, and yeah, they're out there. Uh, but again, it's got to start with, you know, I, I hate to sound cheesy about it, but it's got to start from the heart. You know, people have to be charitably inclined for any of it to start to make sense. Yeah. And, and I just want to reiterate on this podcast, obviously, this is all for educational purposes. We're not wrecking, recommending anything for anybody Correct. in particular. And if you want to learn more, you can always reach out to Patrick. We'll put his information in the liner notes and he'll you know, state it at the end, or you can call me. We'll talk about it, but uh, let's, let's hear a little bit more about you being an author. You know, what are these books that you've written? What's inside of these books and how do you relate that to history? Wow. Um, it, it's, it's quirky. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. Um, you know, what I have tried to do with clients you know, from, from the first uh, job that I had is, is figure out a way to relate uh, without a bunch of jargon, right? And I think that's kind of the, the, the holy grail of financial advice is if you can, can meet somebody where they are and, and look them in the eye and kind of give them good advice without resorting to, you know, the Wall Street jargon playbook, um, you know, you're going to have a much better relationship with folks. So, that was the idea. I started a blog years ago um, when everybody was was starting blogs, meant to tell stories, right? And and the reason I did it is because if you really boil it down, I've got clients, you know, all over the country, and when you really boil down their issue to its basest level, it's fear, right? When the market is up, they're afraid it's going to go down, and when the market's down. They're afraid it's going to go down further, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that is all very stressful for them from a total wealth, you know, perspective. Um, so I went back and I said, okay, if fear is the problem, how do we as human beings kind of address that, you know, throughout throughout history? And if you think about it, your parents did it when you were growing up. They told you a bedtime story so that you weren't afraid of the dark. Uh, and that to me was kind of the key. How can I tell some stories? that will eventually teach a lesson, but will get everybody to, to, to put their guard down a little bit and not be uh, so defensive about their own finances. Uh, and for me not to just overwhelm them with a bunch of jargon. 
Um, and, and that's how it came about. Um, my, my bachelor's degree is in history. Um, I, I read a lot uh, of history and historical fiction. And I just started writing stories based on history and relating them to finance uh, and, and trying to get people to uh, learn that way. And, and that was eight or nine years ago. The book came out in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're working on a second edition right now because things change. They do. And, but history repeats itself, right? So they can continue to learn. Yeah, but it never repeats itself exactly, right? It repeats itself in echoes. Um, so, you know, I, I always tell people history, let history be your guide, uh, but don't let it be the, the be all end all. Uh, because, um, you know, if, if you try to do things uh, over and over the same way, I believe somebody said that that can uh, often lead to insanity. So, uh, you know, think about it, think about it, use your brain. And that's the other thing that I try to, to really emphasize in my books is your brain is not your friend. Um, your brain did not develop to amass wealth uh, and invest money. Uh, your, your brain developed to avoid getting eaten uh, by larger predators and, uh, and, to, uh, and to pass on your DNA. So you got to be really careful about the decisions you make. Um, a lot of them can be, uh, can be improper decisions just based on the way your brain works. And that's, that's something we definitely tackle in the book. Interesting. Well, speaking about the book, Tell us about your maybe three or four favorite tidbits from the book that will spark someone's interest in wanting to read it. And what's it called? Uh, it's called History Lessons for the Modern Investor. Uh, we'll give you a brief uh, for those of you watching the video. Um, so History Lessons for the Modern Investor. You know, I think there are a couple things that, that resonate right now uh, with folks. Um, one being um, a, a concept uh, that's called func- functional fixation. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some experiments done, I think in the sixties and seventies, maybe a little earlier than that on functional fixation. Functional fixation is basically once you start using an object or a tool in one way, it's imprinted in your brain to use it that way forever. Right. Um, the most famous uh, experiment was, uh, using a book of matches. Um, and, uh, the, the idea was, or I'm sorry, it was a book of matches, tax, uh, and a candle, and you were supposed to figure out a way to attach the candle to the wall. And they had, you know, Stanford graduate students going nuts over this thing when the easiest thing was to empty the matchbook, tack the matchbook up against the wall and put the candle in it. And once you hear the solution, you you know, it's the, the hand to forehead moment, because of course, duh, that's what you would do. Uh, but our brain doesn't work that way, right? And for investors now, I, I think uh, it's an interesting concept because we're going into a period that we haven't seen uh, a lot of us in our lifetimes. Um, you know, I can remember growing up in, in the early 80s and the mortgage on my parents' house was 12, 13%. And that was normal in the early 80s. Right, yeah. uh, so that era of high and declining interest rates I don't know, seems to be coming to an end um, as, as we get near, uh, near, near to zero uh, and bounce off, off of that bottom. How do you use the tools that we used in a declining interest rate environment in a potentially increasing interest rate environment? Well, I would, I would maintain that you probably shouldn't, right? You know, if, if you're hanging on to CDs for yield and they don't provide any, 
Uh, if you're looking to bonds for yield and they don't provide any, uh, you know, maybe it's time to, to look in the toolbox and, and see what else is available. And I would encourage investors to do that. I'm not making any particular uh, recommendations there, but just think, right? Just try to get out of, out of the box and use your brain and, and think about what else is out there. Because if you don't, uh, you're, you're falling prey to that functional fixation. You know, I, I tell people all the time that they are 100% allowed to be emotional about their money and how they use it. But hiring a professional to help you with that, we're not allowed to be emotional about your money. Right. We help make decisions that allocate your money towards your wishes and towards your goals and help, help you stay on track, rebalance and all those things. So use your tools properly and we can be one of those tools in the toolbox. Absolutely. And, and I think probably one of the, the most misunderstood things in a relationship with an advisor is the level of pushback. I mean, if you're, if you're working with an advisor and you don't disagree sometimes, that's probably not good, right? Because otherwise, you know, where's the, where's the creative tension? Where's the, um, you know, what are they doing for you to keep you from hurting yourself, right? Because that's ultimately what our goal is. Our, our goal is to bring to light the things that will keep you from completing or, or succeeding with the goals and objectives that, that you've laid out. And a lot, of the, a lot of times, and I'm sure you've seen this in your practice, a lot of times it, it's simple stuff, right? It's just, it, it's these types of things that you don't really think about, uh, but, but these are the tricks that your brain will play on you over time if, if you're not careful. Yeah. And it's usually done around the conversations around the water cooler, you know, the, yeah. what, what works for your friend across the, the hall or your buddy next door, it's not always going to work for you because everyone defines success differently. They have different situations, right. different legacy concerns, uh, different risk volatility appetites. So all these different things are happening. So don't relate your performance to someone else's. Yeah, that's right. And, and something else uh, that, that comes to mind that, uh, you know, I talk in the book and, and I, I talk a lot in my writing about is, we are now in uh, a, a media regime that is primed to give you bad information and steal your money. I, I mean, I, I, I hate to be that blunt about it, but you know, there, there's this unholy trinity of television and social media and the water cooler um, that if you're not careful, you're gonna take the advice that was intended for somebody else and it's not tailored to you. Right. Correct. Um, you know, the, I think the worst thing you can do probably is listen to some of these uh, TV pundits uh, and then go out and execute their strategies because they don't know you. Uh, they have no idea what your goals, objectives uh, and desires are. And yet a lot of times I think a lot that is taken as gospel. Um, and uh, that, that worries me. That concerns me. And again, it's another reason why I, I try to, to, to speak and write and and talk about these things and, and be passionate about it because at the end of the day, you know, uh, you're the person most responsible for your wealth and you got to make good decisions. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I, I try not to bring that stuff up on this podcast as often because I, I don't want to sway anyone from wanting to speak with me, but some of them, they prey on the church crowd. Some of them, they prey on the medical crowd. And there's, there's yeah. a few podcasts out there and they're, they're more, I feel like they're kind of cultish, you know, they, they see, something that they've said work for them. And then they listen to their podcast or their, their shows or their, their, their speeches. And they try to fit what that person's saying to their own life. They try to mold it. It's a confirmation bias. Yeah. And it, it's, it's blanket advice. It's not geared or tailored to you. So take it with a grain of salt. It does work for some might not work for all, 
So be careful when you're listening to those pundits. Yeah. And I would say, you know, experts in general, I'm not saying that certain expertise isn't valuable. And I'm certainly not saying that, uh, that experts don't provide, um, you know, uh, good information, but experts are subject to mental bias, just like the rest of us. Um, and a lot of times that confirmation bias is even worse when you're an expert because you know better, right? You're the, you're the expert. Uh, and I know all these things because I'm the expert. It makes it way easier for me to ignore the things that are going to contradict, you know, my, my theories and my practice. Might I add, uh, might I add, without a financial license subject to compliance from FINRA and SEC. So, right. Exactly. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think you definitely have to be careful about that. Um, you know, uh, another topic that I talk about in the book, since we're talking about experts, is something called informational reflexivity. Human beings want to be liked, right? And even if you're an expert, you still want to be liked. And experts will ignore, you know, advice or information that contradicts what they've already put out there to the world, not because they're evil, not because that, you know, that they have ulterior motives, because they're human beings. And that's what human beings do. You know, we, it's not just confirmation bias. They'll actually take it another step forward um, and, uh, you know, ignore, uh, pretend things don't exist um, that would uh, contradict their, their opinions. So, you know, it, it's, it's a tough environment, I think, to be an, an investor these days, not just the markets, but the media as well. Um, there's just a lot, of, a lot of things out there that can trip you up if you're not careful and you're not informed. Because there's so much information out there, it's, it's important to do research on any professional or person that you speak with about your finances. Make sure that you, number one, you like the person yeah. and they, they, their philosophy aligns with yours. Because if you're consistently trying to give and take and battle and play a game of tug of war, it's just not going to work out. And it won't be enjoyable for you or the advisor to work together. And in addition, make sure that they're accredited. They have the licenses that they should, that they don't yep. have anything negative on their broker check record. And, and, Make sure that you're working with a professional, if for anything, just to check, double check what you're doing. Yeah, the, the second book I wrote was, uh, and it's more of a, I call it a booklet, uh, was uh, The Seven Pillars of Financial Wisdom. And, and it, it talked about exactly what you were just saying, how to find somebody to help you uh, or decide if you need help. You know, not There are plenty of people out there who uh, do their own finances and do just fine with it. Sure. Uh, do they miss opportunities? I would maintain that they probably do because it's hard to know everything. Yeah. Um, but if they're happy with it and that's the way they want to do it, uh, you know, no harm, no foul. Uh, but if you're going to go take that step and find somebody to help you, you know, the, I tried to lay out, you know, some things to consider, such as their education, their style of communication, you know, what does their service platform look like? And that doesn't mean their website and and, and they're, uh, you know, the, the, the person answering their phone, it means how proactive are they? You know, are they going to call you or is it always going to be you calling in? Those are important things to know before you jump into those, those types of, uh, of relationships. And I think that we as providers um, need to be more transparent about that so that we get the right fit too. I, you know, I, I'm not for everybody um, and, uh, and that's okay. 
there's enough of us doing this job now that uh, that that there's the right fit out there for uh, for most people, and I I hope we can help them find that. I love the fact that there is a lot of people out there to be helped. There's a lot of people in this profession helping others and choose the right one. So just to wrap things up today, I want to keep this as digestible as possible for everybody listening. Let me ask you one more question. Sure. Uh, actually, will be two, but this, here's the last question. I And it, I always end with this question because it's important. In your profession or what you're doing today, what is your lasting legacy that you'd like to leave to your clients, to your family, and to your community? Wow. Um, I always look at it, you know, forget. I, I just went on a diatribe about using, uh, using jargon, and I'm going to go back and use some military jargon. <laughs> um, I, I look at you know, my practice as what we used to call a force multiplier, uh, meaning um, it's not just me, it's what I do for others and they go do in their community. You know, I don't have millions of dollars to go contribute to, to causes that I care about, but my practice does uh, through my clients. And in that way, I can multiply what I do uh, and put it out there, you know, to to the world and to the communities uh, around us that that I and my clients live in, and make it that much better than it was yesterday. And, and to me, that's that's the ultimate goal. If we can all live a, a slightly better life than we did yesterday, that's the path to improvement. I love it. Helping others through others. Exactly. <laughs> so, Patrick, uh, thank you again for being a guest on the show. Words of wisdom for everybody. Where can we find you? You can find me at uh, victoryindependentplanning.com. You can find the books on Amazon uh, and I've got an author page there as well. So feel free to visit, uh, leave me a review and uh, feel free to get in touch. Thanks so much, Patrick. Hey, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks for all the words of wisdom again and look forward to um, seeing how this episode does with with our listeners. Thanks, Stephen. Keep doing what you're doing. Appreciate it. Have a great one. Thanks for joining us today on Portfolio Pulse. If you found this helpful and think others deserve to hear about us as well, please like, subscribe, and share us across any platform on social media or your podcast platform of choice. That's it for today. Remember to be happy, stay healthy, and tune in next time to remain financially fit. This podcast is for information purposes only. Michael Stephen Husky is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. OSJ 6115, Park South Drive, Suite 200, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28210. 704-552-8507. Securities products and advisory services offered through PASS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. PASS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Husky Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PASS or Guardian. Patrick Curie and Victory Independent Planning are not affiliated with or endorsed by PASS, Guardian, or Husky Financial and opinions stated are their own.